My mom is still a revolutionary. She was arrested in Sudan in uh, January this year. This year? Yes. So she was out in a demonstration in Sudan and she got arrested and uh, we found out about it just randomly. Um, so they brought my mom into the sheriff's office yeah. and she refused to leave until they let all the other women out because she was scared for anything that could happen to them. My mom was very brave and felt very happy when she came back home, but we booked a ticket to her straight back to she Sweden. Had to get back, yeah, she, yeah, because my mom would not stay home for long, no. and um, she was not happy about it. And she still mad at us for forcing, forcing her, her back to get home. We used her grandson to force her okay. back, also. So that was a tricky one. But of course, you have to have her here, and uh, yeah, she can't be sitting there. No, there's a lot to be done from my here. My mom as is well. 65 years old. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> my mom is. She can't Damn. run. She can't like, yeah. But she's she's trying to do her best from here. In today's episode, we're visited by Aza Ali, who is a freelance communicator that has created a lot of fantastic work. But we're actually here today to talk about a cause that she spent a lot of her time recently in trying to promote and educate people of. It's the cause of the people of Sudan that are currently fighting for democracy and the liberation of their country. Hopefully this episode can give you more of a perspective. And with that, we hope that you will be able to support the cause in whatever way you can. We would like to do these types of episodes and learn about global perspectives in order to use our learnability and our growth to help others in their growth. So if you have a cause that you would like to teach us about, get in touch with us through learnability.online. Now, let's get into the episode. My name is Innocent Maginga, and you're listening to the Learnability Podcast. For individuals seeking growth, we've created this open-ended exploration into our ability and desire to learn. I guess you could call it a combination of what we know and how we learn. So in conversation with individuals, either speaking from experience, belief, or science, we seek to find answers to how to navigate and win in this information age. So, welcome Azali. Thank you. I've been wanting to get you on this platform as soon as I saw how active you've been in spreading the message and you've actually educated me about what's going on in Sudan. I try. I try my best. It feels like it's the least I can do yeah. to spread the message of the Sudanese people um, and uh, try to keep the hope alive somehow. And also a way of healing for me. And it's important, as you said, both for you and for, for the people of Sudan, our friends here, to understand, to really try to get an understanding. And I hope we can uh, further that here in this conversation. Hopefully. I'll do my best. Yeah. 
So let's start with uh, maybe a little bit why you're so involved and why you're so passionate in this question, besides its obvious uh, reason of being an important question. Well, I've been passionate about Sudan for, I guess, my whole life. Um, My parents never chose to leave Sudan. It was more of a circumstantial thing. My family is very closely tied to Sudan. Even though I've lived here most of my life, we travel at least once a year back to Sudan. And uh, my parents tell me stories about Sudan, their Sudan, my Sudan. And... uh, I guess I've gotten my name through Sudan. Azza, which is my name, has yeah. become kind of a symbol for Sudan or for the Sudanese woman because one of the main revolutionary women that pushed for the independence of Sudan from the British colonies, her name was Azza. When was this? This was in 1924. 1924. Yes, and um, this name has grown into become a symbol of Sudan, and I guess I've kind of felt like it's my responsibility mm. to always have a connection to my country, and this is due to my parents and their amazing work, both in the country and also in reminding me where I'm from and yeah. where my roots are. So your parents were politically active right in, in Sudan? My mother was mostly politically active in Sudan. She's been in a lot of demonstrations during her uh, university years. She fought a lot for women's rights. She fought a lot against the female genital mutilation in Sudan. Uh, My father is a doctor, so he worked a lot with uh, um, helping people get educated about their health and how to best take care of themselves. So they came to Sweden before you were born? No, no. my parents actually moved to Saudi Arabia first. All right. Um, and then pretty soon they realized that having three daughters in Saudi Arabia mm. was not the best for them. No. So my dad got the opportunity to move to Sweden to uh, write his PhD. Yeah. And uh, that's when we moved here in uh, 1994. So I was born in Saudi Arabia. Thank you for sharing, by the way, and a really beautiful connection with your name and your country and the progress that has been made there. Could you maybe take us all the way back or as far back as is relevant to the development of uh, Sudan? Oh, wow. We could go f- as far back as the independence of Sudan. Um, but uh, let's stay with the current government yeah. and their position in Sudan. Omar al-Bashir, who was the former dictator of Sudan, came to power in 1989 yeah. through a military coup. And when he took office, uh, when he took power, he was actually supposed to give away the power to a democratic rule and a democratic election. Ah, so he was uh, like a transition, um, how do you say it? Transitional yeah. military okay. council, which is kind of ironically what we're dealing with exactly, right now. Exactly, yeah. Um, and when he came to power, he's a, he then had somewhat of a demo, so-called democratic election, which mm. wasn't really democratic no. and has been in power or was in power for over 30 years, which is all of my life. Yeah. So I've yeah. never known a Sudan outside of Omar al-Bashir. What has he been up to during these 30 years? What have we seen in Sudan? Uh, he's been up to the worst, the worst. He's behind massacres in the Darfur region. He has um, had conflicts and killed thousands and millions of people in South Sudan. 
He is wanted by the International Criminal Court yeah. for two mass genocides. And uh, he has uh, been one of the most corrupt rulers Sudan and I think even the world has ever seen. Mm. And um, he was ousted out of power in April this year. Yes, I remember. People. Exactly, by the people and... I remember seeing that struggle and you once again informed me a lot about what was going on there. I had the idea of doing this type of conversation already then, but then I started seeing some light, I thought. But the following thing that happened seems to be is could you say it's the same? It's the same regime. Yeah. It's exactly the same people who are in power now yeah. that was in power before Omar al-Bashir. So what happened quickly was after Omar al-Bashir was ousted the TMC so called uh, the Transitional Military Council yeah. took power and this was not what the people wanted because they realized that the Transitional Military Council were the exact same people the that were same it's the same that happened 89 exactly yeah. with the same kind of people mm. um, a lot of them who are now in power are allies to Omar al-Bashir and have been active during his reign and his like his years in power um the most famous one right now is Hamidi yeah. which is the man behind the massacre that happened the 3rd of uh, June I've read a little bit about him definitely the wrong person to have in any power position definitely definitely and the way he got his uh, power was also through the mass genocide of the people of Darfur yeah. and uh, the the killings uh, through his group that are called the Janjaweed. What happened there in the massacres of Darfur? So the conflict in Darfur started in 2003. There was tension in the area long before that, but um, in 2003 the so-called Janjaweed, now known as the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, yeah. um took to arms and uh, pretty much massacred the the people of Darfur. A lot of people blame this on the ethnic differences between the people in Sudan. Yeah. Sudan is widely known as one of the most ethnically diverse places in in Africa and uh, the massacre was mostly um targeting people who were of the of another ethnic group. Okay. And um Hamidi just kind of grew in the ranks after the massacre there that was supported by Omar al-Bashir and his regime. and became a general and um, when he became a general he somehow found the means to kind of rebrand re the Janjaweed to a so-called official mm, mm. Um, militia group which is now the rapid support forces okay so, so the same force exactly same just a different name yeah just yeah. a different name and what's sad about it is that you can see that a lot of young men are fighting for Hamidi's cause a lot of them are child soldiers who have been brainwashed by him and his rhetoric. And do you think they know about the history of the group or do they think they've joined a fair cause? I do believe that they think that they've joined a fair cause. Yeah. Um in the beginning of the demonstrations in the beginning of the revolution you saw Omar al-Bashir's uh, regime saying that the demonstrators were non-Muslims, there were people who were trying to destroy the country, there were people who tried to break down the country. Mm. So they've used every single tactic to make people believe that they're doing this for the best of the country, and this is a sort of propaganda that has been used in Sudan for years. 
And I think we've seen it used in several countries, the messaging and, um, and sort of using information warfare. I was speaking to Bintu Bali, who was actually, he spent some time in South Sudan, which is another story. But he, he spoke about not only in regards to South Sudan, but in this digital age, using information war and kind of isolating the people in Sudan. From yes. It's a perfect example of the world we live in. We see Trump using fake news, yes. the same tactics, and they've been used for years. It was used um, against the people of Darfur when they try to spread their message and mm. try to tell people what was happening. What's interesting about the uh, the massacre and the genocide in Darfur is that people of northern Sudan or people of Sudan are now some trying to apologize for not listening to the people of Darfur. Mm. And in the chants, you could hear people chanting "Kull al-Balad Darfur," which translates to like all of us we're all that for oh, and yeah. uh, it became a slogan to kind of say sorry to the people of all of the people who have suffered under this regime including south sudan the reason why there is a south sudan the reason why sudan divided in 2011 was because of the conflicts in 2011 the people of south sudan for a referendum, they did not want to be part of the state because of the conflict yeah. that was under Omar al-Bashir's rule and the massacres and the killings of the people of South Sudan. South Sudan has a lot of oil, so there's a yeah. lot of international interests in South Sudan. Yeah. And also there was a lot of interest from Omar al-Bashir to control the area. Yeah. Therefore, the massacres and, of course, other reasons. Um, there has been a lot of tribalism in Sudan. Mm. People have kind of themselves into different tribes yeah. of somewhat, and that has been used against the people of Sudan to kind of put them against each other. So, but now we have an elective enemy. Yes. We have one enemy and we are one people and we know who our enemy is. And right now it is the TMC. There's a lot of different uh, tribes and that comes naturally a lot in different African nations. Yes. Uh, I'm relating, you were talking about seeing the wrongdoings in Darfur and looking back and seeing that we made a huge mistake there. When I see this conflict happening in Sudan, I'm thinking back to my country of origin, Rwanda, mm. yeah. where we also saw uh, during 93, 94, the outbreak of uh, a tribal conflict. Yeah. And we can look back at that today and yeah. say, damn, this was so wrong in so many ways. We could have and should have done this. Yeah. But it's like we still don't learn when we see similar things happening in other places. We're slow in acting. We are. We're definitely slow in acting and we're quick to say, I would not let that happen if yeah. I had the chance, but we keep letting it happen. There has been so many conflicts just during our generation, yeah. the Syrian conflict, conflicts in in Afghanistan or other parts of the world where we kind of sit back and say, I wish I did something. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know if it's about not knowing what to do yeah. or if it's just a lack of interest. I think it's a combination, probably not knowing what to do, a lack of interest and having a difficulty in relating to the problem or the area. Yeah. So I'm hoping that we somehow in this conversation can, because you're, like you said, you're born in Saudi Arabia, you have your origins from Sudan, you've grown up in Sweden, 
So there's an international path here that to to relate maybe to your story and make bring it closer. Yeah. I think that definitely uh the diaspora yeah. um has a huge role to play in this. Yeah. And you can see what happened when the uh government shut down the internet in Sudan. The diaspora kind of just collectively decided that we need to keep the 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 screams of the people of Sudan we need to keep that alive. Yes. We need to let the people of the world know what's happening and thanks to that you see a lot of people engaging in what is now known as blue for Sudan. Yeah. And uh, and that is definitely a positive step but it is not the only step that is to be taken. I think the diaspora from different parts of uh, of the world and from other African countries have an obligation to keep the conversation going. Yes. There is a revolution now happening in in Zimbabwe. There is a revolution that's probably going to start in Eritrea and yeah. we kind of need to collectively stay strong and do what we can. Press on the media force people to talk about it force our governments to talk about it yeah. especially yeah. when it comes to Sudan and Sweden's involvement in all of this and the EU's involvement in all of this they gave financial aid to the government that is now killing its people i think it came up a little bit when there was a when we saw the videos the horrific videos of people being sold to slavery in Libya. Yes. There was a conversation about the so-called Khartoum process. Mm. The Khartoum process oh, yeah. was pretty much money that was given by the EU to different African countries to so-called manage the migration so that the refugees don't reach Europe. Mostly focus on border countries like transition countries yes. into Europe. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of the money was given to Sudan which is one of the transitional countries. Yeah. um that people kind of travel through to get to Libya and then over to Europe and uh, sadly the money was given to Omar al-Bashir's regime yeah. and at the time Omar al-Bashir was wanted by the International Criminal Court for um for massacres two separate massacres yeah two how can that happen i i i'm trying to understand it i'm trying to understand it but of course the European Union is saying that this money was a financial aid to help build the country the to help create jobs to help to help to help yeah. but it wasn't really given to the right means it wasn't given to grassroots organizations um it was given to Omar al-Bashir yeah. who then gave it to Hamidi mm. who then became the leader in this management of um refugees and the Amnesty International has written a lot of reports about the the horrific um abuses of refugees and Sudanese people on the borders thanks to Hamidi and yeah, thanks to the fact publicly spoken really negatively about the refugees yes. and how to handle them yes definitely publicly. he has he i th- there is one video of him actually saying that he has been has been funded by the yeah. european union this is something that is not going to be admitted by the european union and i think that we as a diaspora in mm. europe mm. need to kind of force our countries to be held accountable yeah. for this only from sweden i think it was about like 30 million crowns that was given into this um, khartoum process yeah. which is our tax money yes um which is money that i'm helping provide by working yes. here and it's ridiculous that i don't even know where my money is going or how it's being used that this isn't 
transparent in any way. Of course, the European Union can say that we did not give the money straight to Hamidi's hands. Of but course. yes, who did you give it to? Yes. You gave it to someone who had committed mass murders and massacres all over the country. How do you think this money is going to be used? Yeah. How can they work closer with the grassroots? Because that's the solution I see. Work with the people on the ground. Yes. How can we sort of create a system where that's possible? I think right now, thought about that? Uh, I, there's so much to do and it's really hard to know where to start. There are a lot of amazing grassroots organizations that you could kind of reach out to through your different embassies in different countries, yeah. through organizations that are in the country, um, through doctors' committees that are in the country. Um, Sudan has a lot of unions. Sudan has a lot of grassroots organizations. And I think you just need to create some sort of reach out program to see where you can help and where you can actually use this financial aid for a greater purpose other than so-called managing yes. the immigration. Yeah. Talking about the grassroots movements and the people of Sudan, can you yeah. tell us a little bit more to get a grasp of who's living in Sudan? I, I read an interesting fact about the average age that reflects, I think, a lot of Africa in, in the youth of tomorrow. Yeah, um, most of Sudan, I think about 60% of the Sudanese population right now is under 30. Wow. And uh, it's just, um, it's, it's, the, it's the generation that hasn't seen a Sudan outside Omar al-Bashir. Oh yeah. It's also the gen- generation that hears stories about how Sudan was before mm. and how much more freedom our parents had when they were our age in Sudan and how... Um, there weren't these really strict laws that controlled people's freedom, people's freedom of expression. Of course, there were some problems too, but this kind of took it to a whole nother extent. And I think people are just seeing what the world has to offer and want the same things for Sudan. Yeah. It's simple. We just, the Sudanese people want freedom and peace. They want to be able to live in their country and they want to be able to have a job that pays them enough to sustain their household. The Sudanese people, I think, for me right now, are yeah. the bravest people in the world. It's hard to say where people are right now. Mm. I think some people feel broken. Yeah, I've seen a lot of um, uh, people posting uh, quotes from friends in Sudan saying that people are just tired. Mm. The revolution was stolen from the people by force. They were attacked brutally um, and their their screams were just like shut down. And, and I think that this is where we kind of play a big role that we need to show solidarity and we need to give them their strength back and exactly. show them that the world hasn't forgotten what they're fighting for. Speaking about hearing stories about the old Sudan, if we could call it that, or the, the previous generation Sudan. Yeah. What type of stories have you heard? Uh, it's funny because the stories are usually about like my mom as a teenager fighting with my grandma. Yeah. And uh, so when I so go... typical teenage. Typical teenage. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> when I go to Sudan um, and during Omar al-Bashir's rule, uh, a lot of women would feel some sort of fear um, because of the way they dressed when they went out on the streets. There were certain oh, yeah. rules on what you could wear and what you couldn't wear. It was like strict Sharia laws. Um, there's even been cases where women have been 
beaten because they are whipped because they're wearing pants. And it's something that is so bizarre to me because when I hear my mother telling stories or my my aunts telling stories about my mom fighting with my grandma mm. about like the the skirts that she would wear. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my grandma would always say that they could not wear skirts that were shorter than a hand above their knee. A hand above their knee. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So she used to place That's fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's short sort of, enough. Yeah. <laughs> and and she used to place her hand above my mother's knee yeah. and then she would say that your skirt cannot be any shorter than this. But if I would wear just a sh- skirt that is above anywhere around my knees or pants or anything yeah. in Sudan, I would do it with a little bit of fear, um, fearing that I would get arrested wow. for not wearing proper clothes. So it's a, it's a big difference. It's a huge difference in a parent trying to raise her daughter and yeah. have some sort of rules and guidance and hopefully <laughs> it's fair enough. Yeah. But a government mm. telling a woman what to wear yeah. is never a exactly. good idea. Exactly. It makes so, no sense. Exactly. So it, it kind of tells you how free my mom felt in yeah. just like having this argument that teenagers yeah. usually have yeah. with their parents about the choices of clothes they wear, no matter how long or short or, or, or not. But this is a family issue and this yes. is not a governmental thing to control a f- woman's body. No. Also, something that my mom fought against was the female genital mutilation that was not banned in Sudan for a very long time. When did that get banned? I'm not fully sure, but I know that it got banned for a little while and then it came back again. Um, and uh, it is weird because it goes against our religious views. Uh, most people in Sudan, not everyone, but uh, yeah. mostly Muslims in Sudan. Oh, yeah. And uh, female genital mutilation is not within Islam. Okay. So my mom fought hard to stop that. Even my dad fought hard to stop that yeah. within his practice. Did they experience any blowback or setback with that fight? Yeah, there was a lot of like crackdown against um, demonstrators that used to demonstrate. It was mostly um, university students that yeah. demonstrated against these things. Um, so they did try to quiet them. Um, I don't, I haven't heard stories of them being this aggressive as the previous attacks. Mm. But there were definitely blowbacks against the demonstrators. My mom is still a revolutionary. She was arrested in Sudan in uh, January this year. This year? Yes. So she was out in a demonstration in Sudan and she got arrested. And uh, we found out about it just randomly. My sister heard the news from... uh, Someone sent her a video um, of women who were in jail. And she just kind of felt like, yeah, mom is, <laughs> mom is with them. Wow. I know mom is probably arrested because I know that she wanted to go out on the demonstrations. And then we did some digging and found out that mom was actually at the police station at that moment. So she was arrested. Yes. How long was she detained? She was detained for around, I think it was eight hours or so. Okay. And um, when they found out that she had a Swedish passport, they yeah. treated her differently. So they were really scared of... Um, treating her the way they treated the other women and the other women that were arrested were much younger than my mother um so they brought my mom into the sheriff's office and she refused to leave until they let all the other women out because she was scared for anything that could happen to them my mom was very brave and felt very happy when she came back home but we booked a ticket to her straight back to sweden yeah yeah, because my mom would not stay home for long and um 
she was not happy about it and she's still mad at us for forcing, forcing her, her back to get home we used her grandson to force her okay. back also so that was a tricky one but of course you have to have her here and uh, yeah she can't be sitting there no there's a lot to be done from my here mom as well. is 65 years old yeah that's what i'm thinking <laughs> my mom is she can't Damn. run she can't like yeah but she's she's trying to do her best from yeah. here wow powerful yeah do you have any plans of going to stan is it is there an opportunity to do that is it the right thing to do or because i see you doing a lot from here i don't i i i want to go back to sudan i was actually um planning to go now in july yeah and i spoke to my uh, uncle who uh actually talks a lot about our responsibility in spreading awareness here yeah and who's pushing us to spread awareness here yes and uh, i believe in that yeah i i i'm definitely going to go back to sudan right yeah. now the airports are open again so i have relatives uh, that are going to sudan right now okay my plan was to go in december yeah. when i was actually supposed to get well what well, i am i am getting married but i don't know if it's going to be in sudan Are you wanted to do it there? I wanted to do mm. it there, yes. Um but now I might just go to Sudan to see how I can help and uh yeah, we'll see hopefully soon. I or not I, we all see Africa as the rising continent that it is. Yeah. And with that we have uh, of course it's all different countries in different positions. But things like this makes me um it hinders or slows our progress yeah instead of spending time on these conflicts that are self-inflicted not from the start yeah. but today they sort of become self-inflicted mm-hmm. it comes from a divide and conquer strategy back in the days mm. and then that sticks and we are not able to make that progress that we deserve and need and will make I'm assuming that we all will Me too. make that progress. Me definitely. So I just want us to stop wasting time yeah. on things like this. Yeah. And start building. Definitely. And this revolution was actually called the revolution of awareness where people started to become more aware of uh, history in Sudan and how that's affected us and how the British divide and conquer strategies has helped to divide us. Mm. Uh, and people were talking about these issues uh people from dif- different ethnic groups yeah. different religious groups were meeting and talking and it was just this revolutionary movement and i think that's why it was getting silenced there is a lot of international interest in sudan of course we have saudi arabia mm. who wants this conflict to continue because hamiti is giving them manpower yeah. to fight their war in yemen Uh, we have uh, the US who's had an interest in Sudan for a very long time because of the def- different natural resources yes. oil petroleum um they have gold uh, minerals pretty much anything you yes. can think of and that's where you need strong leaders to see the value we have exactly. and more long term make let's call it business decisions that benefit the nation long term and everyone in the nation instead of this short-termism uh, approach of just getting whatever comes to you now. Think of the generations to come. Yes. And this is definitely a regime and um, people in power who aren't worried about what's going to happen next. No. 
They just want to see themselves live as long as possible and think that they're immortal. Mm. Um, I definitely think that uh, these people don't have a feeling of what's going to happen to the country after my time. No. They don't care. They don't think that far. That's crazy. I don't think, I think they might, but I don't think they care. Or I know that they don't care yeah, because yeah. it's very obvious that Their they don't care. Their action says it all. Yeah. So to, I know it's really hard, but if you could like, uh, if we could make concrete and tangible solutions that needs to be made, which solutions will we highlight or which support or efforts do we want to see made? Um, right now, the most important thing is to try to push for a civilian transitional government in Sudan. Yes. We need the military to step down and we need the international community to help us pressure the military to step down from okay. power. Yes. After that, it would be democratic elections and for us, the diaspora and also the people in Sudan to focus on the economic growth of the country and how we best can help the economic growth. And you, you said international support. I'm thinking of the African Union. I know yeah. Sudan's um, membership was revoked, right? Mm-hmm. But that should be the first instance to to look to. Or yeah. What do you think? Um, I think that it, it's great that the African Union did what they did because they blocked the uh, government that is now sitting in Sudan yes. from talks yes. uh, and try to pressure them in that way. It hasn't fully affected the Sudanese government right now or the, the TMC, but I think that it will. And I do believe that the African Union is going to um, reverse this as soon as there is a democratic ruling in Sudan. Yes. And then therefore focus more on the economic growth, not only in Sudan, but in all of Africa and how Africa can work as a continent yes. to uh, best benefit all the countries in Africa. Do you think uh, the African Union can help in in um, opposing the military in some way? Should they be the ones or uh, more UN level? Right EU now, level? yeah, I, right now um, with the involvement of the Ethiopian prime minister, um, there is, I'm going to say like a little, little tiny bit of hope yeah. that he is going to be able to meddle in between and uh, get some sort of negotiations going. Yeah. Now the negotiations are at a standstill. Yeah. People are waiting for the responsible to be held accountable for the attack in, in Khartoum the 3rd of June. Oh, yeah. But there was also a, a, attacks in Darfur. So people need to be held accountable for the attacks in Darfur that happened just a few days after the attack in Khartoum. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that is the first thing that the African Union has to be focused on. Yes. Uh, with the help of the Ethiopian prime minister. Great. Um, I think that it's really good that we don't have a lot of Western influences. That's sort of what I'm asking yeah. about. I think I think a lot can be solved within the continent. Yes, I think the international community, what we need to do is to force our governments to be held accountable for everything that has led up to this and to actually apologize to the Sudanese people and also to stand in solidarity to the yes. Sudanese people, but they don't need to meddle too much in it. And that is something the Sudanese people has have made very clear. Yeah. We don't need to, you to meddle too much in this. We just need you to stand by our side yeah. and and uh, to stand in solidarity with us and push for everything that the Sudanese people want. That's great. So we can start reaching the 
uh, intrinsic uh, solutions. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So to reach a solution, the people in Sudan are protesting actively, putting their lives on the line. Tell us a little bit what happened recently with a with a sit-in. All right. So um, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but what happened and what was attacked the third of June was actually a sit-in outside of the military headquarters that had been ongoing for two months. Yeah, I saw some pictures and videos. It, yeah. it looks like it, they made it very empowering. Uh, festivities, exactly. music. It was very empowering. It was very empowering for Sudanese people. And yeah. it was a place where the Sudanese community could meet and talk. When we talked about this being a revolution of awareness, that was where it happened You had uh, children celebrating their birthdays at the sit-in. You had um, couples celebrating their parts of their weddings at the sit-in. We saw footage of concerts and poetry slams. We saw art that has now been deleted from the scenes because the military council does not want people to have revolutionary art. Uh, We've seen so many positive things come from the sit-in, and this was actually what scared the transitional military of council course. because they it was very it just grew it grew and you had people coming from different parts of the country um, to join the sit-in you had uh, all kinds of religions all kind of ethnic backgrounds joining the sit-in and people were united in one thing which was freedom and peace and democracy for sudan Multiple occasions, they, the TMC said that they were going to disperse the sit-in. Yeah. And uh, they've actually now admitted that they dispersed it. And what's sad is that they kind of shrugged it off as a mistake, the attack the third. That it wasn't meant to develop in that way or... Exactly. They kind of just said, yes, we did plan to disperse the sit-in and what happened happened, to quote. Uh, and this was the spokesperson known as Kabashi, who um, had a press release a couple of days ago. Okay. Uh, where he kind of just shrugged it off as, yeah, it happened. They don't want to admit in, um, to all the massacres and the killings of the people. They say that about 68 people died. And their reason is, what they're saying is that they did this for the best of the people. Mm. They were trying to protect people from... I guess themselves. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, But they're saying that there was alcohol in the sit-in and that some people were doing drugs in the sit-in, which is just ridiculous. Which is just like a cheap uh, cheap excuse. excuse. Yeah. Yeah. Use of propaganda to get people on their side, which is not working. No. It is not working. People from the start decided that this isn't going to be a conflict. We are done with the bloodshed. Yeah. We don't want to get violent. So, People chose not to wear arms at the sit-in. Of course. And of course. people actually were searching for weapons. Like they would search people who would go into the sitting yeah. to make sure that no one had weapons on them. Um, so no one uh, wore arms at the exactly. sit-in. People are peaceful. They want a peaceful revolution. They want a peaceful democracy. And they're not going to fight back in that violent no. way. We fight back with our words, we yes. fight back with our struggle and we fight back with each other and we're not going to fight back with the violence that we have been attacked. That's, That's what the so people right. of Sudan are saying. That's the right way to go. And unfortunately that might take longer time but if you think about it, like we're talking about the future generations, Yes, this generation is thinking about the future generations and if you see it for the long term, That's the way to solve it. 
Definitely. And this is a revolution that's never going to be forgotten no. with the Sudanese people. The stories of the people, the brave people of Sudan that have faced all of this horrific, all of these horrific attacks against them. Um, it is our duty to make sure that their stories are never erased. And I am sure that their stories are going to be heard for years to come. Could you tell me like uh, maybe three, five things that I could do and that relates to everyone listening? So the first thing is um, the Blue for Sudan campaign. I know it's getting a lot of criticism and people are saying turning your profile picture blue isn't going to help the people of Sudan. I would say it does in some way because it raises awareness of what's happening in Sudan. Yes. So raising awareness is really important. Using social media to pressure your governments to doing something about the situation in Sudan to show solidarity for Sudan. But there are also so many donations to be made. Yeah. Uh, hospitals need help yeah. to help the injured and uh, keep the conversation going about Sudan. Join at the demonstrations. We are planning a demonstration in Sweden. Um, on When is that? June the 30th. So June the 30th in 1989 was the year that Omar al-Bashir took power in Sudan. Oh, yeah. So now June the 30th, 2019 is going to be 30 years. And we are going to hold a big demonstration. We're waiting for the police to get back to us to where we can have this demonstration. Yeah, But we, we're in Stockholm. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and also join the, the campaigns that you see on social media. Yes. Be aware of fake accounts, I would say. Yeah. Follow people who are talking about Sudan and talk about Sudan because right now the internet is still down and mm. they can't talk for themselves. Yes. So we need to be that voice. I would like to say follow you as well. Thank you. And where can they do that? They can follow me on my Instagram account. That's yeah. where I post most of the information about Sudan, which is A-Z-A-A-L-I-I yeah. and then underscore. Aza Ali underscore. Yes. We'll share that on Learnability's platform as well. Yes, exactly. And I will, most of my content is in Swedish. Yeah. There are amazing people doing amazing work in English and I will definitely post them up so you can follow them and get more information about the current situation in Sudan. Perfect. I can imagine they'll find a lot of filtered information through you and yes. can go on. Yes. And I would like to say the blue for Sudan, yeah. except the, the support that it gets, the people who are unaware, because we live in the information age today, there's so much information and it might be hard to follow stuff. And I haven't actually seen the story of Sudan lifted in a sufficient enough way. Yeah. So just seeing different profiles, like when I go to my Instagram now, there's so many different, so totally different profiles that have the blue yeah. uh, picture. I'm aware of it, but if you're not, you will start wondering exactly. what's going on. Exactly. So that's one small reason why it's important to get the people... Uh, to break through the noise, I'm guessing, exactly. in this information age. Yes, and it's it's working. Yeah. Uh, people are asking questions, yes. why blue? Yes. Which invites the conversation of the revolution of Sudan. Um, it is, uh, it why has, blue? So why, should I explain it? Yes, please. Okay, um, so during the, the attack, the 3rd of June in Khartoum, there was a young man called uh, Mohamed Matar who was killed. He yeah. was shot in his back. He was 26 years old. Um, he was one of many, many, many marchers that have been killed in Sudan so far. So his friends used it as a way of dealing with his death. And mm. it it quickly spread and became not only a symbol for him, but a symbol for all the marchers of Sudan yes. and a symbol for everyone who has died under this regime. 
and uh, is a way of again spreading awareness making people wonder and like you said perfectly break through the noise that is this information craze yes it's so important and i want to thank you for your job it, i'm i'm not the one to thank you but i love seeing young people taking the time you could be doing so many other things but this is an important question and you're needed in spreading it thank you thank you thank you for having me here thank you for inviting me to talk um to you um i'm only trying to uh, make people understand what's happening in sudan with the help of so many other young sudanese people in sweden um join us in our demonstrations and thank you thank you for having us thank you so much see you on june 30th yes you've been listening to the learnability podcast and i'm your host innocent mginga If you want to contribute to the platform or find previous episodes and additional material, you can do that at learnability.online. learnability.online. And oh yeah, don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>